Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on this week's program, we'll visit the Audubon House and Tropical Gardens in Key West. In addition to the white crown pigeon, he did the great white heron here, he did the Louisiana heron, even though it's called Louisiana heron, it was drawn in this area. Slot machines could be found in some Miami drugstores long before modern casinos were legal in Florida. In those days, the slot machines were everywhere in Miami. And the exhibition Florida Cattle Ranching, Five Centuries of Tradition, explores Florida's cowboy culture. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Blackbirds singing in the dead of night Take these broken wings and learn to fly all your life You were only waiting For this moment to arise Naturalist, ornithologist, and artist John James Audubon first came to Florida in 1831 to capture the images of Florida birds for his illustrated book, Birds of America. Audubon did not have a pleasurable stay in St. Augustine, complaining in his letters about hard rowing through the salt marshes, difficult wading through mud and water, and fighting sandflies and mosquitoes. When Audubon returned to Florida in April of 1832, he had a much more enjoyable stay in Key West, where he wrote that his heart swelled with uncontrollable delight upon his arrival. Audubon was the guest of John H. Geiger, whose home is now called the Audubon House. Bob Merritt is Director of Operations at the Audubon House and Tropical Gardens. It was built 1847 to 1849. Uh, he was brought here by the U.S. Navy to be a an assistant in helping with the harbor, get rid of the pirates, draw maps. He was a civilian, but he was known as an excellent ship captain. So the Navy brought him here to try to make sense. And then he, however, went on to become a wrecker, salvaging ships as they crashed on the reef because the wreckers made so much money in Key West and he could plainly see what a lucrative thing this was to be doing. John James Audubon visited Key West and the Dry Tortugas in 1832, so he didn't actually stay in what is now called the Audubon House. He did visit the Geiger home that was previously on the property. What he did was he drew in this garden. There was another smaller cottage exactly where we are sitting right now, not this building but it was so ridden with termites that it was beyond in, beyond being repaired or put back together. But Audubon did use this garden, which was more advanced than what many, because Captain Geiger's wife was from the Bahamas, and her, the Bahamas were the, one of the beautiful islands, beautiful series of islands, whereas Key West was a rather ugly island back then, coral rock and Indian bones and scrubby trees, and they made this garden kind of a showpiece, and Audubon loved it did his birds here or uh, nearby. It's believed that Audubon drew at least one image in the Geiger family garden. His depiction of the white-crowned pigeon appears to be sitting in a particular tree. It's in the tree, 
the Geiger tree, and the Geiger tree was actually named after Captain John Geiger. It blooms many times a year with uh, small clusters of orange blossoms, not not to be confused with the Royal Poinciana, which produces bouquets of orange flowers and is almost the summer signature tree of Key West, but the Geiger tree blooms all year long. John James Audubon created life-size watercolor drawings of 1,065 birds for his multi-volume series, Birds of America. While in Florida, Audubon identified 52 birds he had never seen before and drew 18 of them. Bob Merritt. He did the great white heron here. He did the Louisiana heron, even though it's called Louisiana heron. It was drawn in this area. The roseate spoonbill, um, the... Uh, white crown pigeon that we mentioned, and the brown pelican, which is really a superior drawing. These are what I call his celebrity birds. That's the name I made for them. But they are the ones that command great attention and the largest amount of money in the antique editions. To create his colorful and amazingly detailed works of art, Audubon would shoot his subjects and then place the birds in lifelike positions. To depict a bird in flight, he would hang it upside down so the wings would open. Joseph Mason, George Lehman, and other artists added details and assisted Audubon with his drawings. Twenty-eight first edition Audubon works are displayed in the Audubon House. We have them in two forms. We have the Havel size, which, which are the, the big ones sometimes called the elephant size. And Audubon did all of those first. Then he went back again, sometimes with the help of his sons, and did what are called the octavos, which are smaller and are one-eighth the size of the big ones. In the main, when he first started out, his market was back in England. That's where his patrons were. So he had to take the big ones across the pond, so to speak, to England and to some extent France. And when, by the time he did the small ones, he started to have an American market. The last descendant of John H. Geiger was reclusive. He would lower a basket from the second floor of his family home and kind Key West residents would fill it with food. The house had no electricity and the property taxes had not been paid in years. In 1958, the home was saved from threatened demolition. Docent Dennis Temple gives us a tour of the Audubon House. The house was built out of woods that were readily available in the um, southern Florida regions in the early days. Um, the flooring that's in the house is a heart pine, sometimes called a yellow southern pine, Florida slash pine. The exterior doors of the house are cypress, uh, woods that resist rot and termite damage, so ideal for this climate. Also the house was built by ship's carpenters, so it's been able to withstand the impact of hurricane force winds because of this robust structure. And the gentleman who built the house is called Captain John Geiger. He came to the island as a 19-year-old sailor when the American government established the naval base here. That was in 1823, just after this island became an American possession and the U.S. government suddenly had all these newly American waters to be controlling. Captain Geiger eventually became a very wealthy man in the salvage industry. We had a kind of legalized piracy down here called salvaging or wrecking that made an awful lot of people rich um, in Key West. It was the only place in the world where there was a legalized form of piracy. And Captain Geiger brought up his nine children here in the house, seven daughters in the nine and the house stayed in his family for four generations, but by the time his great-grandson was the last of the family here, the house had become very neglected in appearance. All the men in the family stayed with the sea as their means of livelihood, and of 
course, what was a profitable livelihood for the old captain back in the 19th century became less and less so for his descendants. And when the great-grandson died in 1958, everyone thought the house had become so neglected it should be bulldozed so they could build a gas station on this corner. Fortunately, that did not happen. Mitchell Wolfson from Miami came down and prevented this house from being destroyed. Mitchell Wolfson had grown up here in Key West, so he certainly had a, a passion for his hometown houses. And this um, house was restored over two years and began our historic preservation movement here in Key West long before most other American cities began to acknowledge the value of an old structure and actually put protections out there to keep people from destroying them. The house is dedicated to John James Audubon, who was hosted here by the Geigers in 1832. Hosted simply because Audubon never made any money during his lifetime devoted to studying birds. He relied on the generosities of strangers um, along the way, and the Geigers were happy to oblige, and Audubon discovered 19 new species here in the Keys, and we have a gallery on the third floor of the house that brings together all of the local birds that Audubon discovered and painted while he was down here. And we have two forms of the uh, antique and watercolored versions of Audubon through the house, large copper plate engravings that show every bird life size. These were done in England in the 1830s, uh, copper plate engravings and formed the double elephant folios of all 435 species that Audubon placed on paper life-size for us. These were only done in small quantities because only a few rich people could afford them, so Audubon made the birds of America less expensive in the 1840s by reducing the original image through a series of lenses. It was called the camera lucida, brought the image down to one-eighth full size, he called these the Royal Octavos, and those were done in hand watercolored lithographs. And our third floor gallery brings all of our local birds together in one room in the antique lithograph form. Also on display at the Audubon House are the handwritten field notes of John James Audubon. These observations and descriptions were later incorporated into the ornithological biography as a companion to Birds of America. Dennis Temple. Yes, that's um, one of the things that not many people know about, aside from making uh, marvelous um, paintings of these birds and giving them a species designation, officially giving them a name for the first time. No one else had attempted to document the birds of America before Audubon took on this challenge. Audubon wrote very detailed and very charming notes about each of the birds, their way they um, mated, how they built their nests, and he gives you a very good indication of the natural habitats that he was experiencing while studying these birds in the very early Key West when there wasn't much of a population here at all and they were still here in great numbers. Yes, just not Key West, but he discovered a lot of new species at Indian Key and also the Dry Tortugas where Fort Jefferson Taylor is um, 70 miles off the shore of Key West. As visitors tour the Audubon House in Key West, they can enjoy displays of antique furniture as well as the work of John James Audubon. Director Bob Merritt. The most most valuable one perhaps is the Biedermeyer desk, which is in the parlor, but there's also a harp from Dublin, a piano from about 1790. Um, there are a couple of ladies' dressing cabinets and things like that. There's spectacular, a puppet theater for children in the children's bedroom, an old French male 
um, piece, but, but has all these drawers in it and a clock on top. So he could keep his suspenders and his handkerchiefs and all the things in the drawers and watch the time when he was due at some social function or for a date or whatever the case might be. But they are most unusual pieces. The Geiger family home, now called the Audubon House, is one of the oldest houses in Key West. Its restoration is credited with starting an active preservation movement. As Bob Merritt explains, the house itself did not originally have glass windows as it now does. You have to remember that initially there was no glass. It was just the open window structure, open doorway structure. Floors are original, wooden doors are original, but there was no glass in the house. The entire idea was to capture the breeze, but they tended back then to wear much more heavy clothing, formal clothing, regardless of the temperature. And they they wanted that breeze so much from any direction. And one can see how much of each room is devoted to window space or door space. No curtains and no screens, but that also led to bugs. And there is evidence of sickness in the house, a wheelchair, child's carrying chair from the yellow fever of the time period. Today, the Audubon House and Gardens can be rented for special events. Like the house, the tropical gardens reflect the aesthetic of the 1800s when John James Audubon visited Key West. Number one, of course, is is the uh, Geiger tree. But we also have sapodilla trees, and, and these are evidence of the kinds of things that were brought back from Cuba and from the Bahamas that, that were planted in here. Uh, there are a lot of... Uh, old old plants in there too but we also we also have to keep restoring it all the time originally this garden as it is currently laid out what was done by peggy mills who owned what is now uh called the gardens hotel but the gardens hotel was her home and she did a beautiful garden there and then designed this one this one had to be uh, while beautiful as a garden it also had to provide food and so it had many different purposes you had some cattle around and some pigs and some chickens and so that in addition to fish they had some other things to eat too. The original works of John James Audubon are proudly displayed at the Audubon House. While there you can also purchase your own original early work or if your budget is smaller a very nice reproduction print. Bob Merritt. We sell two kinds. We have the antique prints from the first, second, and third editions as well as some Havels here. And then we have copies, modern day reproductions, either the Princeton's or the Heritage Edition or the Audubon House Editions. These are, are wonderful and they're much less expensive in general, but they are machine produced. Whereas we have an enormous collection of particularly octavos, which are all hand colored and all from the 1840s, 50s, or 60s. The Audubon Society, named after John James Audubon, was created in 1886 to preserve and protect birds. A primary focus of the organization early on was to stop the mass killing of birds in South Florida to provide plumes for women's hats. The Audubon House and Tropical Gardens no longer is directly affiliated with the Audubon Society. We're very close to them, and, and they are, have been close to us. And at one point in time, the Audubon Society actually ran the property. But then they came to the conclusion that Key West was not wilderness enough, not consistent with its mission, not providing habitat for the birds. They wanted less to be concerned about antique furnishings, roofing, termites, and such. They, they thought they needed to be concerned about space and wildlife for the, for the birds. And so 
uh, they, it returns to the Wilson Family Foundation to mentor and monitor, and that goes on to this day. Audubon planned a return trip to Florida in 1837. He visited Pensacola, but was unable to arrange transportation east and south due to the Second Seminole War. Today, his original life-size depictions of birds can be enjoyed at the Audubon House and Tropical Gardens in Key West. Blackbird flies into the light of a dark black night. Singing in the dead of night Take these broken wings and learn to fly All your life You were only waiting for this moment to arise You were only waiting for this moment to arise You were only waiting for this moment to arise This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find out about upcoming events, discover great books on Florida history and culture, listen to archived editions of this program, and much more. While you're there, please take a moment to click on the Join Now button and become a member of the Florida Historical Society. You'll receive our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, our newsletter, the Society Report, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Seminole Tribe of Florida owns the entire Hard Rock franchise, including two casinos in Florida. Long before modern casinos came to our state, slot machines could be found in some Miami drugstores. Janie Gould has more. One-armed bandits were part of the South Florida landscape during the Depression. Slot machines, legal and otherwise, sounded their merry clatter in drugstores, filling stations, emporiums, and even fish camps during the 1930s and 40s. That's the way a newspaper put it years later. Frank Pierce is a retired optometrist and a highly decorated veteran of World War II. He worked in a drugstore in Miami while he was going to high school. In those days, the slot machines were everywhere in Miami. So that type of gambling was legal in those days, I guess. Uh, it's hard to say if it's legal or not. It, it, was, it was widespread, but no one was being prosecuted for it. So it was overlooked, winked at, maybe. Overlooked. Now, were children allowed to use the slot machines, or was it adults only? It was adults only. How much money could somebody make? Oh, some would be a hundred, hundred and fifty dollars. And they took quarters and even dimes. Yeah. If three bars came up, you had a winner. I guess you heard some yelling and screaming sometimes, right? Oh, yeah.
Frank Pierce was acquainted with a family who were heirs to a milk fortune. The elderly matriarch used to frequent the drugstore where he worked, and not just to get her prescriptions filled. She would come down and play the slot machines. But she was too old and didn't have enough strength to pull the lever. So she would give me a quarter to stand by and pull the lever for her. I never saw her win any huge amount. She had a great time. How long did she play? All afternoon sometimes? Probably an hour or two. How long did the slot machines last? All the while you were growing up? Were they there? Pretty much while I was growing up until World War II came along. Then everything changed in many different areas. And the slot machines vanished? Vanished. You were telling me there was a club in the middle of Biscayne Bay, a gambling club of some sort? It's called the Bikini Club. Pretty wild, whiskey and gambling and slot machines. But it was rigged so that if the law enforcement people came after them, they could pull a lever and the false floor of the barge would open up and the machines would fall into Biscayne Bay. How did you know about that? I went by there one time on a boat. When was the Bikini Club around? It was after the war. But those were the only slot machines that were in evidence at that time, yeah, right? right. The Mafia was free, but she controlled a lot of that. They controlled the slot machines in the drugstores? Yes, and they did. Did you ever see a mafiosa? <laughs> Not to my knowledge. <laughs> if he was one, you didn't know it, right? No. What's your most treasured memory about your childhood in Miami? My friends in the neighborhood. In those days... Kids weren't sitting in front of computers. We made, made our own forts and tree houses. And in those days, you weren't frowned upon to ride your bike to high school. I rode my bike to high school. Today it would be uncool. And there was a lot of vacant land even in Miami at that in time. North Kendall Drive, it was vacant land as far as you could see. After graduating from Miami Senior High School in 1941, Frank Pierce enrolled at the University of Florida. But his education was interrupted by war. He served as a B-17 bomber pilot with the Army Air Corps. He completed 25 combat missions in Europe. After the war, he became an optometrist and practiced for 35 years in Coral Gables. He and his wife, Jean, retired to Vero Beach 17 years ago. Janie Gould from WQCS prepared that report. This is Florida Frontiers. The opening of the exhibit Florida Cattle Ranching, Five Centuries of Tradition, provides a glimpse into a way of life unknown to most Floridians. Bill Dudley talks with a few of the men who carry on the cowboy tradition in Florida's oldest industry. I reckon you just got to like it or be a glutton for punishment. <laughs> Sitting on the front porch of his home outside Keenansville, Florida, Billy Davis says he's been a cowboy all my life. And so was my daddy, and so was his daddy, and so was his daddy. About 45 miles southeast of Kissimmee on U.S. 441, Keenansville is in the heart of Florida's cattle country, surrounded by large ranches, including one nearly 300,000 acres in size. Cattle ranching in Florida is huge and figures very strongly in Florida's history. Florida's what I call the modern economy, post-Civil War. Cattle ranching was the basis for that. Outreach coordinator for the Florida Folklife Program, Bob Stone, spent two years traveling the state talking to cowboys, ranchers, and their families for an exhibit showcasing the state's cattle culture. 
From a few livestock brought here by 16th century Spanish explorers, Florida's cow population today is estimated to be nearly 2 million head, on ranches from Homestead to the Panhandle. Most of the men who work the herds are hired as needed for a day or two at a time, and often that day begins early in the morning. Most places you're, you're in the saddle at 7 o'clock, which means, you know, if you live 20 miles or 30 miles away, you got to get up and get your horse fed, tacked up, and your chores done, and then drive to the ranch, you know. So, that, yeah, it's, it's usually early morning. Cowboy artist Eldon Lux owned his own ranch out west till hard times in the 1980s. Now works various jobs in the industry, as do many of his friends. My day work, I paint. I still trim and shoe a few horses. I've also got a saddle shop. And I can run a loader a little bit, you know, but if I don't ride my horse two or three days a week, I'm hard to live with. I tell you, you'll not meet a, a group of uh, harder working people. And one thing I've learned is this work is so dangerous. Brood cows weigh 1,000 pounds, bulls weigh 2,000. You don't think about it being a dangerous job. You just try to be in the right place at the right time. And I mean, agriculture itself is a high-risk job. If, if you got a good crew, you got people know what they're doing, and you work together, why well, you can eliminate a lot of the danger and the risk. You know, all of us can do different things, but there's just, they ain't, they ain't nothing like cowboy in all their elements. Billy Davis says one thing that keeps him in the saddle is the feeling of being close to nature and the outdoors. Oh man, you have no idea unless you lived it. Early in the morning, fog laying across them palmetters in the piney woods, and your dog's holding up a bunch of cattle, and you and your riding partner sit there, and cattle coming out of there, you know, and you sit real quiet, and... At that time, you're not thinking of bills you got to pay or nothing else. There's a rodeo nearly every weekend somewhere in Florida. Cattle people share a strong sense of community, a long history of families working together over generations. When people get concerned about what this world's coming to, if you look into the cattle ranching community, you know, you'll have a pretty secure feeling about there's a lot of good still going on. People are doing a lot of good work and pulling together as communities have for, for centuries. To see the young people, that's one of the things that's impressed me most is they know what they want to do and they're working hard. And they come out of high school, you know, the good ones are they're ready to go. Another cowboy who's becoming known as an artist, Sean Sexton, has a small ranch near Vero Beach. He sees the exhibit and the renewed interest in Florida's cattle industry as a way to heal the disconnect between Americans and the people who feed us. It's probably not even 2% of us anymore. It's 1.8% of us are doing all of this on behalf of the other 98%. Everybody 100 years back had a farmer for a forebear. Right now we're determining what real value is in our culture. What we thought was value is turning out to not be value. A lot of the things that we devalued, farm commodities, those things are ultimately going to find a, a real value in this world that we're living in. You know, basically food and all of its sources, those are things that have always been the stepchild in our culture. I'm from the West, and I'm proud of my heritage from the West. I'm also proud to say that there's no place east of the Mississippi River that I know of that has the tradition and the ranching heritage and the pride, the cowboy pride, that this part of Florida does. I'm Bill Dudley 
With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us again next week, and until then, you can visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org, join us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society, or follow us on Twitter at MyFLHistory. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated.